Welcome back for another episode of the Sharpen Podcast. Hey, I'm your host, Kirby Green, and Sharpen is the podcast for young professionals. We exist to sharpen young professionals for the workplace and beyond. If you haven't already, please leave us a review and be sure to subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. By leaving a review, that helps other young professionals find this podcast, and we so appreciate it. We're also on social media, Facebook, Instagram, and our YouTube channel, Sharpen, the podcast for young professionals. Yeah, you'll find its usage in all major religions, non-religious contexts, corporate settings. And I think the reason that it's resonating so deeply right now is because we are just craving and starving for self-awareness and Mm self-understanding. In a world in which we have Uh, untold amounts of information right at our thumbtips, you know, through our phones, it can be really hard to make sense of life and hard, hard to understand what are not only ourselves, but those that we either work with or in relationships with. And the Enneagram really helps unpack that in, in a pretty profound, but also accessible way. Well, that was Drew Mosier, our guest for today's episode. Really excited to have Drew come back to the Sharpen podcast. So he is a repeat guest. And we talk a little bit about his prior episode on this one today. Uh, But Drew is joining us to talk about the Enneagram. Now, for some of you, when I said that, you have absolutely no clue what I'm talking about. Others are completely annoyed because I'm another person in your life talking about this thing called the Enneagram. And some of you may be really excited because you absolutely love the framework of the Enneagram. Wherever you lie on that range of emotions or thoughts around the Enneagram, I hope you will stick with us. We are starting the Sharpen Podcast Enneagram series. It's going to be so much fun. We are going to start out with Drew today, and he is going to give us an overview of what the heck the Enneagram is and why this framework is so helpful to young professionals to stay sharp, for the workplace and beyond. After Drew's episode, we are going to bring on young professionals from all nine types on the Enneagram for an episode on how they're using this framework for the workplace and outside of the workplace. Um, I think you're really going to enjoy these conversations. So today's episode is with Drew. Now, Drew is a uh, teacher on the Enneagram. He has traveled quite a bit lately, and he is going to spend some time with us walking through the nine types. Before we get to today's episode, we have a newly formed YouTube channel, which is so much fun. So a lot of you have asked uh, to be able to see the interviews, to kind of feel what they're like more in person. And so we now have footage on the YouTube channel. Be sure to check it out. It's been so fun. And especially for some of the interviews that take place in person, hopefully you'll feel like you're right there with this. So sharpen the podcast for young professionals on YouTube. We'll have the link in show notes. With that, we're going to get to today's episode, the opening for the Enneagram series. Well, Drew Mosier, first of all, welcome back. You are a repeat guest on Sharpen, which means that you had rave reviews. I was actually just sharing some of those with you before we got started. So first of all, welcome back to the Sharpen Podcast. Well, that's a relief. You know, it's, it's good to be invited <laughs> back. Thanks for having me. And I'm glad I, I didn't screw it up so much the first time that it ruined the chance to come back. So it's good yeah. to be back with you, Kirby. Really glad to have you back. Or you could just be like that cousin that just we always have to invite back anyways. Right. You know? No, I'm kidding. I'm that's kidding. fair. That's fair. No, I'll- I'm kidding. 
<laughs> We're so pleased to have you back. I'm so excited for this episode series, um, the series of episodes on the Enneagram here on Sharpen. But before we go there, uh, tell us a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. Okay. So as you said, I'm Drew Mosier and I, I live in Indiana where I work at Taylor University as a professor and administrator and I also do some writing and speaking on the side. I uh, wrote a book called Ready or Not, Leaning into Life in Our 20s, which we talked about last time I was on the episode um, on your podcast, which is about vocation, this idea of how do you understand your calling. Um, but then I also uh, do a lot of work with the Enneagram. So I've been using the Enneagram for about 11 years now, and it works really well with the work that I do helping uh, people discover who they are and where they're headed. Yes. Uh, highly recommend Drew's book, Ready or Not. We have a previous episode, so go back and listen to that. And uh, it's designed for your 20s. So it's an excellent book for our audience. We'll be sure to link it in show notes today. Uh, but the, you mentioned it, the Enneagram. So before we got started recording here, you and I were talking about, I mean, this is all a buzz um, from, a, from a Christian perspective, but then now you talked about even some corporate settings, some nonprofit um, but we have a lot of people listening that are like, what the heck are you talking about? They're probably slightly annoyed, you know, because yeah. their cousin, sister, friend, everybody's like, oh, you're a type, whatever. So let's just start at the very beginning. What okay. in the heck is this Enneagram thing that everybody's talking about? And why is everyone all of a sudden talking about it? Yeah, that's a great question because it is hard to get uh, into any social setting or work environment without someone talking about this Enneagram thing. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's important to note that Enneagram is E-N-N-E-A-G-R-A-M, which is uh, a Latin kind of mashup, um, uh, meaning nine things or a framework of nine things. And so the Enneagram itself is a framework of nine things. And we'll probably have a link to a few things in the show notes where you can see, but uh, there's this symbol that has nine points on a circle and then some lines that connect all of those points on the circle. And uh, what that really means is uh, that there are nine different types of people in the world and that we all have a dominant personality type. And that helps us understand so much about who we are and what makes us tick. And so the Enneagram has been around for centuries it's an ancient tool. You'll see traces of it all over antiquity. But more recently, it's become really, really popular uh, mm -hmm. because it really helps us uh, get to the kind of the core of who we are and understand ourselves and those we care about um, really effectively. Yeah, that was well said. So why do you think you mentioned it is different? Uh, and we're going to talk about the nine types. But from your perspective, I mean, you're a teacher on the Enneagram. Uh, why do you think that is? Why all of a sudden is there such a buzz and interest? Like even it's often used from like a church setting, right? Uh, sure. But then even outside of that, why? Oh, yeah. yeah, you'll find uh, its usage in all re major religions yep. and non-religious context, corporate settings. And I think the reason it, that it's resonating so deeply right now is because we are just craving and starving for self-awareness and self-understanding. Mm -hmm. In a world in which we have uh, untold amounts of information right at our thumbtips, you know, through our phones, 
it can be really hard to make sense of life and yeah. hard, hard to understand one, our, not only ourselves, but the, those that we either work with or in relationships with. And the Enneagram really helps unpack that in, in a pretty profound, but also accessible way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we, you mentioned that we're talking about nine things or, or nine yeah. types. And if you've been in a social setting and people are talking about, I'm a this or I'm a that, and I think you're a this or that, it can be super annoying. But then sometimes you'll have one victim at the table who doesn't know their Enneagram type. And then by the end of it, partly probably because they're super annoyed, they're like, how do I know my type? What yeah. would you say to that dinner guest there? Right. So there are nine different types. And they, they're associated with a number one through nine. Uh-huh. And you, every person has a dominant personality type. And so that'll often be, then be translated to just a simple number. So for instance, I'm a three, which means I'm an Enneagram dominant type three. Yep. And then that also has a nickname associated with it. And then a whole, you know, kind of general common understandings of what it means to be a type three. Now, the way in which you go about discovering your type is really uh, personal. So I'm very much of the school of thought that you have to discover and kind of acknowledge and own your own type. Now that said, there are a lot of tools that are out there to help you in that journey, ranging from tests. Some are not very good at all. Yeah. Others are more helpful. Um, I would, I only encourage the tests as a way to get started, not as a way to define your type, because it's really hard to test for what the Enneagram truly offers which is uh, what is your core motivation in life? So that's what your dominant type helps you understand. It helps you understand what is driving your thinking and your behavior, which is really hard to test for, but there are some good tests out there and um, we'll link maybe to one or two in the show notes that could be helpful. And then another way to learn is by reading books. Uh, There's some great resources out there on the Enneagram. Um, The one uh, that I think is the most accessible initial primer on the Enneagram is called The Road Back to You by Ian Cron and Suzanne Stabile. It's a really helpful introductory guide. Um, or there's also, of course, you know, tons of workshops that you can attend to learn more about your type. But really, you have to decide, okay, with honesty, that this is my dominant type. Mm, that, so I'm so glad you said that. That's typically the kind of last comment one of our friends will say, I'm super interested in the Enneagram. How do I know my type? I'll mention the road back to you or maybe certain tests, or I'll say the key thing is, is you have to be honest because I don't know about you, Drew, and maybe this is the not to get all about a, a three like signature traits, but yeah. you know, in high school or college, when you have the personality test, I'm like, I can, I can do, you know, I can take the test how you want me. If I'm in this right. group, I need to come out with these results. And if I'm in this group, and that does you no good with the Enneagram. Right. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. You have to be honest yeah. with yourself. Uh, the other thing I would encourage you to do is not to try to type one another. <laughs> it, it's, a, yes. it's typically bad form to try to type someone else, assign a label to them. You know, yeah. we don't like to be labeled by others. Um, now, certainly those that we know, um, really well can speak into the process, but really you have to discover your own type. Uh, I have a few tips if it's helpful as you're trying to determine between the nine types, which one makes the most sense for you. Um, One is when you read a description about a particular personality type, and we'll, we'll go through at least a brief introduction of all nine types later, but uh, the one that maybe stings the most or hurts the most 
it, there's a good chance that that could be your dominant type. Mm. Um, or if you read one and say, why is the particular author of this book or resource so negative about this type and not the others? It's chances are they're not negative about that particular type. It's just hitting you in, in kind of a deep way. Or uh, most of your listeners, I imagine, are in their 20s. But if you're older and uh, having trouble, if you think back to when you were in your 20s, what described you and what really uh, captured you and the essence of you most, that's also a good indicator that that could be your type as well. So those could be some helpful mm -hmm. tips as people are on this journey trying to figure out which of the nine types is their dominant one. Yeah, that's so interesting. You talk about the 20s as a really good time to take a look at that. My, my friend that we were talking about the Enneagram last week, and that's exactly what she said is, as I look back to my 20s, or as I look back to those youthful days where I kind of didn't know, right? I didn't know what I didn't know. So I was just acting on the fly, not right. acting, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think something about our 20s, we're, uh, we're living a, a little less restrained, you sure. know, in our world. And, you know, for better or worse. 30, yeah, for better or worse. And, and <laughs> in our 30s and 40s, we develop some more kind of coping mechanisms or strategies that kind of mask some of the not so great parts about our type, yeah. which is an important point that the Enneagram uh, gives you the best of you and the worst of you in terms mm -hmm. of your type. Yeah. So it's uh, unlike some other personality assessments where it will really inspire you because you will, it'll give you language to some of the things that are truly great and amazing about you, but it'll also give you language and descriptions of things that are not great about you at all. So it's, it's both. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's a key point too, is it gives you language. So although you mentioned some of the tips when, when that moment stings, uh, I don't know about you, but being a three in a workshop on the Enneagram is the worst. <laughs> and, but yeah. there's some language uh, that's less, um, uh, aggressive or it's less, uh, personal or it's still right. personal, but you know what I mean? It is a language rather than just, um, uh, an attack or however you want to think. Right. Of it. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've come out of, um, Enneagram trainings with, with my wife who I'm a three and, and she's a type one. And we both yeah. come out of a, a training thinking, man, they were hardest on our type. <laughs> Meaning, yeah. and I can't, both can't be true, right? They can't be sure. the hardest on type one and the hardest on type three. Um, but it is, it, it really is how we are experiencing and connecting with the language associated with that type. Yeah. 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 Well, so let, let's, uh, let's go through the nine types. So sharpen listeners, you are in for a treat. We are doing an entire series on the Enneagram for Young Professionals. So Drew has, is going to, he's told us a little bit about the Enneagram. He's going to give us a walkthrough of the nine types. And then we are going to have a follow-up interview with each of the nine types to hear about how they're using this framework in the workplace and beyond. Uh, so we're going to dive deeper into this, but, but Drew, you start us wherever you want to start on okay. that. You probably have an order. Yeah. So, well, what I thought I'd do, um, you know, teachers do it different ways. I'll, I'll just start with one and kind of go around the horn, you know, okay. one through nine. And I'll, I'm going to speak very briefly about each type. So hopefully just to whet the appetites of your listeners, yeah, yeah, yeah. then they can um, dive more deeply in your follow-up episodes. But uh, before I start that, really important to note that this should give you a lot of grace and compassion and understanding mm -hmm. for yourself and for others. So uh, that's what's what I think the best use of the Enneagram is, is that understanding should lead to uh, compassion and greater understanding for one another. 
as opposed yes. to, you know, labels or, you know, using uh, these types as weapons against one another. So oh, yeah. with so that good. being said, uh, let's start with type one. Okay. Okay. So type one. Uh, now the nickname, there's a nickname for each type and it's important to keep in mind that they're just nicknames. So they, they help us remember, but they don't fully capture everything that's going on with that type. But the nickname for type one is the reformer or sometimes they're called the perfectionists. Now at their core, ones want goodness in the world. That's what's driving, mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's their core motivation in the world. But when they are faced with a lack of goodness in their world, or they see all sorts of brokenness or injustice or things that aren't right, they develop a lot of habits or just patterns of improvement. Uh, and most, most notably within themselves. So that mm -hmm. you know, they're very hard on themselves and have a really high standard for who they are. So what this looks like then is that ones are often very, they're rule following. They can be perfectionistic. They can come across sometimes as critical or judgmental, but I think it's important to note that they're most critical of themselves, but they're really great at seeing how something could be improved and made better and then actually helping make it better. So uh, ones can kind of enter a room and see something that can, can, that can be improved right away and then uh, are really good at studying about that work of improvement. Um, now, what they tend to struggle with, though, is, is just seeing things as good enough because <laughs> they can quickly see the flaws. Yeah. But uh, they're really great at improving our world and, and making it better. So those are the ones, okay, type ones. Mm -hmm. Now, type twos are known as helpers. And at they're, they're the best. They're the best people, aren't they? Well, we love type twos because we do. Um, they they're so good at just seeing needs and then meeting those needs. Um, now at their core twos uh, really want to love and be loved without strings attached in their life. But when, you know, they see a world in which that isn't always the standard, uh, they develop habits and patterns of helping and serving others to maybe to earn love or to feel loved. But twos are so sacrificial they have this sort of sixth sense for being able to enter a room and see where the help is needed before it's even voiced. And then they'll, mm -hmm. they'll just step up and go help. Um, so they have that radar and they're often willing to drop whatever they're doing to help someone else. So they're al always willing to come alongside others. Now the struggle with twos though, is that it, they often struggle with their own sense of boundaries. So they have ha mm -hmm. a hard time saying no. They have a hard time caring for themselves and they have a hard time not seeing themselves as the person that needs to be helping. Whereas in sometimes situations, others could be helping. So, uh, so those are the helpers. Okay. Can you already hear the points of empathy and compassion as we go through this? That's why I love the framework. You alluded to it yeah. earlier, but yeah, this is good. Yeah. Cause if a lot of times we can, kind of see behaviors in, in personality type, yes. but if we don't actually get deeper to see what's driving it, then it is hard to have understanding and compassion for one another. All right, so that's, uh, we've done one and two. Now we're gonna do type three. And so this is gonna get personal. That's right. Oscar, I know. About threes. Um, so I have a little three convention here. And, <laughs> or uh, intervention, however. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> type threes, they're known as the achievers. 
And uh, at our core, as type three, we want to feel worth. We want to feel worthy and we want to feel worth. So when we go about our world as we all do, and we begin to question or feel if, if you know, we bring worth to the table, whatever environment we're in, we're prone to either you know, craft images or personas to impress or become important to a group. So what this looks like then is threes uh, are typically highly successful, very task and goal oriented. They get a lot done more so than the average person. And they're assertive, but in a savvy way, more polished way. Uh, but what uh, maybe the downside to this is that threes struggle with, uh, with feeling that they should be able to do everything and be everything to everyone. So they can kind of lose a sense of who they are sometimes. Mm -hmm. And they also can struggle to just be. If they're not doing something productive, that, that's really hard for us threes. And uh, we can kind of take on these chameleon-like tendencies to adapt to whatever is valued in any given room. We can mm -hmm. kind of turn that on and work the room really well. How does that sound to you, Kirby, as a three? I think it sounds very invasive, all the things <laughs> you just said, but very, very, very true and accurate. Yeah. So we get a lot done, but uh, we struggle sometimes with our own sense of identity and purpose in the process. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So those are, uh, those are type threes. Now we're going to move on to type four. Type fours are known as the individualists or sometimes they're known as the romantics. Oh, I've never yeah. heard that before. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe not in a Valentine's day sappy way, sure. but maybe as I explain, it'll make some sense. Now uh, type fours at their core, they really want belonging. So they really want to belong and they really want to feel a sense of belonging wherever they are. But of course, you know, in a world when, which it doesn't always, uh, in which it doesn't always feel like a place of belonging or they don't feel understood or known, fours uh, can be prone to retreat to their inner world, uh, often an inner world of feelings, um, and then often try to recalibrate and find some unique ways to express themselves to be different or distinguished from the crowd. So uh, what this looks like then for type fours is that they are highly empathetic. Like they can read the feelings of others and themselves very well. Mm -hmm. They have deep emotional wells. They, they sometimes have all the feels, <laughs> even uh, sometimes too many feelings, um, but often they're so empathetic. Um, and they often look for ways to stand out or be different or, or be unique. And so uh, that often leads fours to be very creative. And so this is why we have not all artists are fours, but we have a lot of fours who are in yeah. kind of artistic pursuits, whether it's music or fine arts or whatever it might be. Now fours though, sometimes struggle though, getting stuck in their emotions um, and not knowing how to kind of get out of, out of those patterns and re-engage their world. Um, but uh, what's really kind of driving them is this idea of belonging. You know, do mm -hmm. I belong? Do others belong? And how do we make sure uh, everyone belongs? So those are type fours. All right. Are we ready for type five? We are. Okay. So type the five. Wicked, wicked smart people. Is yes. Not, they the, typically are. Yeah. Yes. They typically are. Type fives are known as the investigators. Mm -hmm. 
um, or the observers. And type fives at their core, they want competency. That's what's driving them. They want to be competent, they want to be perceived as competent, and they want to feel competent. But in, you know, we can't be competent in every area of our life. And so when we don't feel competent, you know, type fives then will uh, often retreat into places in which they can acquire knowledge in order to kind of feel more competent. So what this looks like for type fives is that they will, they'll take deep dives on topics that are much deeper than the average person. And it could be this obscure kind of topic, or it could be a hobby, or it could be a work project, and they will just go so deep and learn so much more than the average person about it. Uh, so they tend to be very cerebral, very analytical. Um, but because of this pursuit of acquiring knowledge and being competent, they're always gauging how much energy they have for things, especially social engagements, people, yes. parties, etc. So they're always kind of calibrating, do I have enough energy for this? Because I want to make sure I have enough energy in order to kind of pursue this topic or study, et cetera. But they're really intelligent. Uh, and sometimes though, fives can struggle from, an, from analysis paralysis. You know, they mm -hmm. can, um, they struggle to apply that knowledge sometimes in a productive or practical way. Um, but they're really great to have on a team because they will just dive deeply on something and know it and truly own, <laughs> own the subject as a result. Between the fours and the fives, who do you think despises being typed the most? I could see both of those two members be like, don't Well, type. yeah, I think fives struggle um, to, what I've known is that fives struggle to own their type because they're constantly wondering, have I learned enough about this system mm -hmm. in order to be able to know it? Yeah. Fours struggle to be typed often because you don't understand me well enough to be able to you know, type me or yeah. to categorize me into this particular box, you know, if it's a book or test. Um, so they, they both struggle to be typed, but from diff different motivations, right? Which makes okay. sense. Yeah. Given what we know about them. Yeah. Okay. So uh, type six. Sixes are known as the loyalists of the mm -hmm. Enneagram, which uh, talks about their core motivation. They, at their core, they really want loyalty. And, you know, in, in a world uh, full of people who make mistakes and, uh, you know, misunderstandings and whatnot that, you know, we all find ourselves in situations in which we sense a lack of loyalty sometimes. And so what that looks like for six is that they look for ways to feel secure. Um, and so you'll see sixes sometimes securing their environment, you know, locking doors. Those, not all sixes do this, but some do. Regardless though, sixes are very good at threat forecasting. So they can- <laughs> so I don't know um, why that's funny. <laughs> They can think yeah. in, in worst case scenarios yeah. very quickly and very easily. Whereas other types, you know, what could go wrong? Nothing. You know, they aren't even thinking about it. Yeah. But sixes are often thinking about what could go wrong and what their response will be if that actually occurs or happens. Sure. Now, uh, uh, sixes also are great team players because they, they value loyalty above all else. So they, they are so loyal to a team and to a cause or to an organization, but they are kind of the safety officers of the Enneagram sometimes. So they will make sure that we, you know, all the safety boxes are checked, but sometimes all that threat forecasting isn't always productive, right? So sixes can sometimes struggle to just rest and relax, you know, in the now and trust their own intuition that things are going to work out. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Sevens, very different from sixes. 
Uh, Are they the most excited to be typed? Usually, Uh, typically, yeah. (laughs) And then uh, sometimes the quickest to check out when they've discovered (laughs) their type because they're moving on to something else because sevens are known as the enthusiasts, okay? And at their core, sevens want contentment in their world and they want to feel content and they want others around them to feel content. But not everything is happy and positive. And so when that's at risk, sevens are prone to seek that contentment or that satisfaction elsewhere. So what this looks like is sevens are often the life of the party. They're the ones that you know that bring the fun, typically. Now, they're not the only fun type, I'll say on the Enneagram, but they are consistently just a really fun people to be around. Sevens are always up for an adventure. Mm-hmm. So uh, they're high energy, they're winsome, they're also assertive, like us threes, but in a, a more of a fun kind of whimsical way. So they're the ones encouraging, hey, let's go do this. And um, they're the ones asking what could go wrong, meaning nothing. It really isn't going to be that bad, whereas sixes might be asking, listen, here are all the things that could go wrong with the situation. But the, the struggle with sevens, though, is that they, they often don't stick around in something when it gets boring or difficult or painful. So they'll, they'll be quick to kind of check out of a situation once maybe the, the satisfaction, contentment, or fun, or excitement is gone and they'll be looking for it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But they're fun to be around for sure. Oh. And you can see how, as we talk about all nine ty- we need all nine types, right? They all bring something to the table. Yeah, yeah. I can imagine for, for those of us, the Enneagram is a new framework, or for, for those of us that this is a refresher, we're like starting to see these teams we're on, and we're starting to think about the relationships that we're in, and it just gives you a whole other side to their perspective on things. Yeah. And, and it also says, we need you all. We, right. we, we don't need all threes. We don't need all sixes. Right. We don't need all. Yeah. I, I love, I love that. That's what comes from the Enneagram. Right. Yeah. I often get asked, well, what's the best type? And the answer is they're all the best and they're all the worst. <laughs> so we need, yeah. yeah, there's no, no, there's no pecking order here yeah. uh, with these different types. They all bring really great things to the table and they all have some blind spots. Except nines. They'll tell you Jesus was a nine. So they're <laughs> right, like, well, yeah, there's different theories about that. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So eights. Uh, I'm married not- to an eight, Drew. Did you oh. know that? No, I did not know yeah. this. Okay, mm-hmm. so you have to tell me if any of this resonates with okay. you uh, since you're married to an eight. Okay. Eights are known as the challengers of the Enneagram. Now, eights at their core, what they want in life is protection. And so anytime that they feel that that protection is threatened or if they're unsure that the protection is there, they respond by going on the offense. And so eights are known then, or maybe you'll see a lot of eights as hard charging, high energy, uh, generally powerful. Like the eights will even just have a kind of a powerful presence about them. Mm-hmm. Even if they're not wielding that power actively, they just kind of have a powerful presence about them. Sometimes when, especially when unhealthy, they can be kind of controlling. They can take charge of a situation, but they're strong leaders typically. Uh, you know, I talked about threes being assertive, but in a savvy way, I talked about sevens being an assertive, uh, but in a really fun and whimsical way, eights are just assertive often, <laughs> period. <laughs> you know, they're not as concerned, you know, about yeah. how others are receiving kind of their, their force of life in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, here's, what's great about eights. Um, they can take charge in situations and often when others are looking around for who's going to lead this thing. 
they're also fiercely protective of the people that they care about the most. Now, they'll have a, AIDS tend to have a smaller kind of inner circle in which they're willing to be vulnerable because again, if, if protection is paramount to them, they're, not, they're gonna really be selective about who they're vulnerable with. But uh, AIDS are so protective of the people they care about the most. So I would, you know, uh, I'd want an eight in my camp any day, <laughs> you know, because yeah. they will be uh, very protective, fiercely so, of the people they care about. So does that resonate at all? Yeah, it. You were talking about the twenties and how that yes. time frame can be helpful to think about. Um, even eights, one. This is just a pattern that I've observed in talking with H. Drew. You should start uh -huh. incorporating this into your teachings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But when someone's like, I'm between like a, a six and an eight or a three and an eight, like they'll go through. And not that this is the deciding factor, but I'll say, have you ever been in a fist fight before? <laughs> and yeah. All yeah. the eights I've ever talked to, the answer is yes. Because as kids, they were typically like a friend was telling me about her friend that's an eight. And she said, Oh yeah, I had a sunburn one time and some bully slapped me on the back because mm. he knew I had a sunburn and my third grade girlfriend went over and punched him in the face. And I was like, yep, <laughs> I think she's an eight. So yeah. And you know, the eights get a bad rap, you know, they're, I know. they often get called eight holes, <laughs> you know, yeah. where, and that's not really <laughs> fair to them because what they're doing in their assertiveness, they're just testing the waters in a yeah. really efficient manner. Like, Hey, yeah. can I trust you? Am I safe around you? Mm -hmm. um, and are you going to be safe and trustworthy to the people I care about the most? And that's yeah. what they're doing. You know, Chris you Hewitt, yeah, Chris Hewitt, who wrote the Sacred mm -hmm. Enneagram, which I would also highly recommend, okay. talks about eights stomping the ice in between you and another person, you know, to mm -hmm. see, see if it's steady ground. And that's kind of what they're doing. Yeah. That's good. But well, there you go. There's a little tip on your teaching. Yes. And then yeah. uh, the other thing about <laughs> eights too is that they will, they have this kind of, you know, maybe hard exterior to a lot of people, but when they're in their inner circle, they will just melt. <laughs> yes. So that's why I say eights um, are amazing. They kind of transform either with babies or puppies. They'll become really tender yes. and vulnerable and sweet with them because it's about this protection, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. All right. We have one more. Okay, talk ready? about those that say Jesus was a nine. So let's just give them their moment. <laughs> right, right. So nine. Okay, so uh, I'll talk about the nines, and then maybe I'll give you um, some insight into what I think about that. But uh, nines are known as the peacemakers of the Enneagram. Yeah. So at their core, nines want peace. They want peace in their environment. They want to feel peace internally. And so when they feel disruptions or conflict in their life, either internally or, or externally, they're prone to just try to find ways to feel calm internally or externally. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what's great about nines and probably where uh, people are kind of getting this idea that Jesus was a nine. Um, nines can see things truly and authentically from multiple perspectives. And they're not necessarily being wishy-washy when they do that. I think they get the bad rap for that. But they can truly see both sides of an argument. They have that ability to kind of see from perspectives. Uh, they tend to be uh, a calming presence in any room they're in. Now, the tr sometimes the struggle of nines is they want to avoid the conflict as a way to try to feel calm. And so you can kind of see nines might be physically present, but they might be kind of checked out 
you know, in, in their eyes or they'll kind of melt in their chair, you know, when, when things get more tense and kind of check out. So they can be prone to withdraw even if it's an internal withdrawal. Um, because of all this trying to regulate the calm internally and, ex and externally, they can be a little lower energy, little have less energy than most of the other types. And sometimes they can struggle to find their voice in a group. It can take them longer than others to be able to express and voice their opinion on something or their perspective because it takes a lot of time for them to work through what they can truly see, which is all of these different perspectives. Uh, but so what I'd say, though, is, is there ever a moment in our culture when we need nines more? Right. Oh, yeah. And so certainly we can draw parallels between Jesus and nines. Um, I'm more of the viewpoint that <laughs> that Jesus is all nine types. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and not just, just the nine, but that's yeah. my take. Your listeners yeah. can decide, I suppose. No, that's so, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. We'll let, <laughs> we'll let you decide Yeah. that. Um, so first of all, thank you. That was a very helpful, um, run through of the, of the nine different types. As you think about, um, kind of starting at the foundation of, of what is the Enneagram? Why is it so popular now? Okay. I think I'm nudged in a couple of directions on my type. We're going to link yeah. next steps, but, but what's the encouragement to young professionals listening that are familiar with the Enneagram, or maybe this is the first time they're learning about it. So as they right. start to explore these nine different types, I know you started out with um, this is a, such a point of, of grace as we start right. to go in this conversation. What, what am I, what am I forgetting? You know, that you would say you got to know right. this as you start. Yeah, that's a great question. So I think it's, it's common in personality assessments to take the results of a test and think, okay, this is who I am. Mm -hmm. And that define that suddenly defines and it's the end of some sort of knowledge journey. Um, whereas with the Enneagram, it's actually more of a trailhead. It's actually the beginning of a journey. Once you know what yeah. your dominant type is, uh, the Enneagram itself is a very dynamic tool. And so while you are that dominant type for the rest of your life, there's a lot of dynamic work in understanding how you are when you are stressed, how you are when you're thriving, uh, how you avoid conflict, how you resolve conflict, uh, how you tend to perceive and analyze your world. Um, there's a whole host of wisdom available to you. Now that you know your type, uh, it's time to dig deeper. And so you even indicated, you know, uh, regarding your husband as an eight, probably looks quite a bit different now than he did when he was in his 20s. Mm -hmm. And so while we, our type doesn't change, which is a common question I get, our type, dominant type doesn't change, we become less uh, stereotyped by our time over time. If we do some That's intentional good. personal development work, we're not quite as easily identified by some of the stereotypes that could associate our dominant type. And so we should look like I should look a little less three ish maybe <laughs> over time. And, um, by that, I mean, some of the negative aspects of my type shouldn't be so apparent because I'm really digging into this Enneagram tool and, and all the different ways it can help me grow. Yeah. I've heard it said too, especially for the fours who don't like to be like they're, they're the individuals. I want to be unique, especially, but for all types, it it's relevant. The Enneagram yeah. does not put you in a box. It gets you out of this box, right? Yes. That of your, of your type. And so right. just as an encouragement for those of you that are listening, they're like, 
I don't want to do this just because everybody else is talking about it. The reason everyone's talking about it is it's a helpful framework. And, and the last, the last thing there too, is I think that, I don't know about you because I've, I've been in the fault, but like people will gather and it's all they want to talk about. And then they want right. to type everybody at the table the, well, you know, he or she could work on this part of, I think there's another message there too, that you would probably share of, of how to approach the Enneagram. It's another tool. Right. It is another, it's not the end all be all, but it's a really helpful tool. Yes. I think it's also important to note that uh, when we think about it, reducing all of humanity to nine different groups of people is pretty absurd, right? right? So there's even, there's great complexity, even within each dominant shape. So, you know, you and I as threes probably look different, (laughs) you know, we're not exactly the same. And that's okay. I think the Enneagram is big enough and dynamic enough to allow for that. So um, I would encourage a listener, if they're early on in this journey, not to be stressed out about conforming to very specific kind of simplistic understandings of each type. Yeah. Drew, this was so good. First of all, thank you for your overview. Uh, for those that are listening uh, that want to connect with you to learn more, I mean, you're able, you're, you're a you're a great teacher of the Enneagram. Obviously, we gave you a short amount of time to go through all nine types, but we'll be sure to link in show notes how folks might connect with you. But uh, you mentioned the Enneagram in your book, uh, Ready or Not. Yeah. Are there any other resources that you have that folks can check out? And we'll be sure to link them too. Yeah, sure. If you go to my website, which is drewmosier.com, D-R-E-W-M-O-S-E-R.com, I have uh, just some sampling of the Enneagram work that I do. So I, I've done consultations individually. I do work with uh, nonprofits and corporate, you know, seminars on the Enneagram. So there's some information there about that. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for making time for, for our audience. This has been, this has been a really great place to start. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Sharpen Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, leave us a review. And of course, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. Until next time.